This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And here's our own Alex Cortez with today's story. American Craig Richardson had a childhood that was a little bit different than his friend Ben Fries. Craig was hanging around with famous economists. Milton Friedman tucked me into bed when I was five years old, gave me a goodnight kiss on the forehead. My dad jokes that was the day I became an economist. While Ben, a British kid whose family moved to Zimbabwe, was hanging around with wild animals of a different sort. African stars on an African night when you've got lions roaring and hyenas whooping, uh, something that uh, is far better than any Mississippi star that you'd ever see, I'm quite sure. Their lives would be different later on, too. Craig interned at the World Bank. The woman who was the lead researcher said, well, we want you to do three background papers on three countries, Zimbabwe, Colombia, and Argentina. And I just rather impulsively said, I'll take Zimbabwe. And so that entire summer, I just got knee-deep in appreciating everything about that country. In 1992, it was really the jewel of Africa. And so I wrote this 100-page background paper, which I really put aside. And then it wasn't for another 10 years that I went back to investigate what happened to Zimbabwe because it was just falling apart. And that was kind of the launch of this 15-year exploration into what happens when a country abandons rule of law and property rights. For Ben Freeth, it wasn't an academic study. It was real life. It was like being in a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back. We had a, a couple of guys that did try and defend themselves with guns. They got killed, you know, when you're a few farmers against a, an army of 40,000 soldiers and, and 20,000 policemen, you don't stand a chance. Zimbabwe, like a lot of countries, was colonized. It was led by Cecil Rhodes, who fashioned himself as an entrepreneur, but he really came with machine guns and captured huge amounts of territory, which would later be called Rhodesia, named after himself, and created a colony of England. And Rhodesia was run by a small group of whites. And so for many, many years, all the way up until 1980, there was a huge disconnect between the fate of blacks and the fate of whites. In 1980, after a lot of guerrilla warfare, Britain really backed away from the leader at the time, and they had elections, and Robert Mugabe came into power in 1980. And Robert Mugabe was a very well-educated man, and also extremely shrewd and canny, as time would tell. And so the early story of Zimbabwe is a fairly good one. Um, he immediately created a series of primary, middle, and high schools for all the black citizens of Zimbabwe, and the literacy rate went up to 92%, which is the highest in all of Africa. And higher than the United States is right now. A lot of people thought he would 
kick out the whites at that point, but he didn't. The 1980s and early 90s had strong economic growth, tourism was growing. The agricultural system was really undergirded by about 4,000 white farmers who were there, many of them from British descent. They had very large scale farms. And this system was based on Zimbabwe's very strong property rights system. And I was really going to find out how important this was. Because the importance for any farmer or for any business really is to have collateral. If you go to the bank, you want to be able to have collateral. And the collateral comes from having a title to your land because that becomes the insurance policy for the bank. And the bank will loan this business money, but they know that they can foreclose on that land and get some of their assets back. And so that it becomes so important and so critical for economic growth is that people need to have property titles and that property title creates trust. And that's a really important point that a lot of economists in America miss because we just take property rights for granted. But in Zimbabwe, property rights were enshrined. They had a constitution very much like the United States. There was this blossoming of economic activity. So where did it all go wrong? We had been a one-party state. There was only Robert Mugabe and his party, and he had made sure that there was no opposition. Any opposition that had been raised up, he had stamped upon very quickly and persecuted until they were out of existence. And then in 1999, an opposition was finally formed, a viable opposition, and it was quite clear after 19 years of, of Mugabe's rule that Mugabe would be out of power when it came to elections. So what Mugabe did was he put together a referendum to change the constitution to entrench his power. The people were given the carrot of you're going to get land for free if you vote yes for this constitution. Of course, nothing in life is free. The land was to be seized from Zimbabwe's white farmers. And the people voted against that constitution, and that was a real shock for Mugabe. And he realized that he was going to have to do everything possible to ensure that the people were intimidated ahead of the election in 2000, so that the opposition didn't come into power. That's when all hell was let loose. Within two weeks of the result of that referendum, which Mugabe lost, we had farm invasions all over the country. It was well organized including on the farm of Ben's in-laws, which he farmed with them, and thousands of others. And Mugabe endorsed it all. It was done in a very violent way, and the police were under very strict instructions not to help us. And we suddenly realized what it was like to live without law without the rule of law protecting us any longer. And when we come back more of this remarkable story, our rule of law series, what happens when a country abandons property rights and the rule of law. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Zimbabwe's dictator, Robert Mugabe, ushering in the seizure of farms owned by his country's white citizens. This is also the story of two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist. Let's pick up with Craig. Originally, Zimbabwe was, before the whites colonized it and took it over, it was a series of communal lands run by different tribes, the Shona and the Ndebele. And, you know, honestly, they fought over land as well. And so within these villages, the chief is really the one who decides who gets the land. And that gives the chief a lot of power. And that's still, that, that's still existing today, side by side, with the current system. So there's been a tension about that. So these villages, there's a lot of communal land, and, and you know, and the upside of that is it sort of creates this very family environment, and you know who is going to be there and who's not, and you can't just have strangers come in and move next to you. So it creates this kind of coziness, but there's a price of everything, and the price of coziness is poverty. <laughs> so that's one of the things that, that I've tried to explain, is that there's, there's always a positive and a negative. So when you have the property rights, they can be threatening to a culture that has been there for a long time, and that's why it's really important if people are coming in, you have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful of a culture that has been there for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years and think about what's the right way to give people ownership over this process and transition. So this communal system grew up and when Cecil Rhodes came in in the mid-1800s, of course, there was seizing of land and so he did, he did the same thing, you know, as Mugabe did. I mean, he seized land without compensation in most cases. But over time, you know, over, over a period of 100 years, that land then began to be traded and sold and bought and sold by different entities. So, and, and then by that time also, a lot of whites were being born in Zimbabwe, you know, considered themselves Zimbabweans. They didn't think of themselves as British. They thought themselves, we are Zimbabweans just like everybody else. So in some ways, it's not very different than if you think about, I mean, here in North Carolina, I mean, we have land that we're sitting on here right now that, you know, was formerly, quote unquote, owned by the Cherokees, right? So we have every, I mean, the history of land is a history of theft in some ways. You know, and at some point you have to go back and you have to say, yeah, that happened. But it sometimes is really hard to correct those things as well. So... Fast forward, you know, sort of a hundred years, the land which had been initially seized by the whites is now being bought and sold on markets. And now the people who are a hundred years later are, you know, several, three generations after the fact are now buying land under the auspices of the Mugabe government, which is approving these, these sales. They are giving people letters that are saying, this is a letter that says that what you've done is proper and we recognize your constitutional right to own this land. So if you, it, by the 2000s, uh, when these seizures happen, there's a statistic that something like over 95% of all of these farmers had bought those farms on the market. So, you know, this idea that these people had taken money with, or taken the farms was not right. Their ancestors, yeah, but not them. Perhaps the greatest evidence that this shouldn't have been a black versus white thing 
is that 8,500 black farmers had commercial farms that were just like those of the white farmers. And just like them, they were also successful. Their race had nothing to do with it. Their property title had everything to do with it. Communal lands that were literally right next to these productive white and black commercial farms were dusty, ugly, and unproductive. My wife's family have been farming in Africa for just over 300 years without a break. That's a very long time. That's a lot longer than many white Americans have been in America. And yet, because we are white people, a lot of the world seems to think that we cannot be Africans. How many generations does it take before people are considered to be from the place that they are from? In America, I'm quite sure there's, there's no question about a white person being able to be an American. But in Africa, amongst the black nationalists, they do not consider that a white person can be an African. Um, and there's something very wrong in that. We're kind of treated as though we are, we are second-class citizens, that we, we have lesser rights to everyone else by virtue of the fact that we have a different colored skin. And because we're white, the rest of the world looks the other way and they don't want to deal with this issue. Um, if we were a black minority people in a predominantly white country, the world would say, no, no, this is, this is absolutely wrong. And things like the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of, of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, complaints would go to the United Nations on, on that and, and, and things would happen. But because we're white people, that, that doesn't happen. I, I've tried to find a country that would put a complaint into the United Nations. There's not one. We initially had an invasion on the farm and it wasn't violent, but it was obviously very disconcerting. That's an understatement. Over 20 black invaders entered their farm and refused to leave. Anxious that they might cut down trees on the estate to build homes, Ben's father-in-law, Mike Campbell, gave them a shed to sleep in. And they gradually took over the farm. Cows were stolen and slaughtered, fires were started at random, and gunshots were fired in the middle of the night. Unlike most seizures, which took place in a couple of hours, theirs happened in slow motion over a matter of years. Which in many ways is almost worse. Quite early on in the farm invasions, um, we had a group come onto the farm that had come from a faraway place where there was a lot of malaria. We didn't have malaria on the farm and these people brought a strain of malaria with them. In a period of a month, nine of our farm workers died. And my sister-in-law, Heidi, was pregnant with twins at the time and very sadly she 
died along with the twins. So it was a it was a very tragic thing for the family. Uh, she was she was still very young and um, had a had a long and, and vibrant future. In 2004, we realised that a government minister was after the farm, and he pitched up at the farm with a bunch of guys with with AK-47s. And he said he was coming to take the farm. And um, we, we said to him that he would have to take it or that we would do everything possible to make sure that if he did take it, he would take it in a civilized and legal manner. And so that's when we as a family decided that we had to make a stand. Anyone going to the law courts was deemed to be an enemy of the state and there was huge intimidation for anyone that tried to use the law courts by then all the the good judges had been intimidated out of office and all judges had been given farms themselves um, so we knew that there was really no chance of getting any justice in the law courts but we decided that we had to go to the law courts even so and I remember when my father-in-law signed that bit of paper taking President Mugabe to court, we knew that it was probably the signing of our death warrants. And when we come back, we'll continue with our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's abandoning of property rights and the rule of law. And of course, what terrific narrators What terrific storytelling by both Craig Richardson, an American economist, and his friend, Ben Freeth. When we come back, more of their stories, more of this remarkable story about something we all take for granted each and every day here in America. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's Abandoning of Property Rights and the Rule of Law, and we pick up with Ben Freeth, whose family's farm was seized by the government. Zimbabwe law by then was, was getting very difficult because the following year, 2005, they changed the constitution to say that government could take any land at the stroke of a pen and we didn't have any recourse to be able to go to any court. Suddenly we had no leg to stand on according to Zimbabwe law. And you know that's a really really difficult place to be. The amazing thing was that within a week of having our hearing in the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe 
the SADC tribunal opened for business. And, and this was a court for all the 280 million people of Southern Africa. We hadn't even known that it was about to get up and running. So we were able to eventually end up in that SADC tribunal, this human rights court for the whole of Southern Africa, where we took it on three grounds. We took it, first of all, on the fact that you can't just take all rights away from someone without any recourse to the courts. That ouster clause, as it's called, is something that goes against the rule of law. You know, you have a right in any legal society to defend yourself if something is happening to you that you believe is wrong. And if you're told that you can't even go to the court to say that the process is, is flawed, then um, you end up with no protection from law at all. And then the second point that we used was the fact that it was racially discriminatory. It was just because of the color of our skin that we were being victimized. And then the third aspect that we put forward in the SADC tribunal and the Supreme Court was the fact that if you take something from someone, you should compensate them. It's the work that you have put in that has built that place up. When we built our house, for example, you know, we, we made every brick on the farm. We, all the trees that we used for the roofing were, were trees that were, had been planted on the farm by the family. It, it, it was all our own work. So to, to take it away from you without any compensation <coughs> is absolutely ridiculous. And two weeks before the main hearing of our case in the tribunal, they took us off, they abducted us. The henchmen of dictator Mugabe. They beat us up really severely and they tried to get us to withdraw from going to court. And by this stage, I was unconscious and my father-in-law was unconscious. And so eventually they got my mother-in-law who, who by this time also was in a bad way. She had had her arm badly broken and was beaten around the head and all bruised and um, they put a, a burning stick into her mouth and she was in a bad way but she was conscious and they they got her to sign a bit of paper to say that we would withdraw from the court and that's the kind of lengths that they wanted to go to 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 make sure that we we couldn't continue with the law And in the face of all of this, Ben and his family continued anyway. And we won on all three counts. The international court ruled in his favor, by the way, those are all black judges, and so that his farm should be restored, that Zimbabwe took this farm away improperly. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe just, the government totally ignored the ruling. But he got a lot of international attention for that, and, and a lot of that was really just just to draw attention to Zimbabwe and how it was ignoring rule of law and really to, you know, cast some shame on the government. And then he had another lawsuit where he went to South Africa, and again he won. And what he did was he attached to the lawsuit the claim on one of Mugabe's residences in South Africa, one of his, you know, vacation homes. And he won that case. And so what happened was 
that South Africa turned over the assets to Ben Freef. So that was a pretty clever way to file that lawsuit. But the battle wasn't over. Several months after they beat Mugabe in the Sadic Tribunal came payback time. We had uh, all hell on the farm and, and a new massive invasion took place where our workers were thrown into fires and, and uh, dropped on their heads on concrete and had fractured skulls. Black workers, by the way, over 500 of them who were dragged off to all-night indoctrination classes to persuade them of Mugabe's way of thinking, which wasn't their way. They loved Ben's family. You know, really, really difficult times, which finally ended up with, with both our houses being being burnt down and, and us having all our crops stolen and, and, and all the tractors stolen and, and all the tools of our trade stolen. And, and we walked off that farm with, with not even a toothbrush between us as a family. Zimbabwe went into a downward spiral um, in 2000, and this is where I got interested again in what, what the heck was happening because the economy was collapsing so fast. And what happened was the 4,000 farms you know, as they began to be seized by the government, there's probably only 300 left that are in way in Zimbabwean hands. The export sector collapsed. Those who seized the land didn't know what to do with it and didn't really have any interest to learn how. On Ben's family's farm, the present squatters there grow corn but admit that it's no good and produce a 60th of what their family did and 40,000 fruit trees they leave untended. And the export sector was so important for bringing the hard currency in to pay the government's bills. So tobacco actually was coming to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I live, and RJR Tobacco is based here. So we were buying tobacco from Zimbabwe. When you had the loss of flow of dollars coming into the country of Zimbabwe, it starts running a huge budget deficit. And in a country where you have trust, you can, you can sell bonds. You know, so the United States can sell bonds to fill a deficit because there's trust around the world that we're going to pay on our debts. But here's what's critical is that when Zimbabwe broke with rule of law, they lost trust. They lost trust immediately around the whole world and foreign investors pulled out. Nobody believed the government anymore about anything. So they couldn't sell bonds to plug this deficit. So what could they do? The only thing they could do is start to print money. So they began some printing money to cover these deficits. And we know what happens when you start printing more and more money is you start to have this inflation. And when I was there in 2006, the inflation rate was at 50,000% a year. So my dinner bill at the restaurant I ate at was about $400,000. And uh, I gave a nice tip of about $20,000 to my waitress, but that was only about $20 in US dollars. So the whole bill was about $400,000. When I returned the following year in 2007, the same bill, the same restaurant, was over $3 million in Zimbabwe dollars. 
I, I didn't think it would be getting higher than that, but in fact, hyperinflation roared on. It went into the hundreds of millions of percent a year. They issued the biggest bill in the history of the world. They issued a hundred trillion dollar note, which was worth about three dollars. And you can't make this stuff up, folks. Rule of law matters, property rights matter, and we're not finished with the story. When we come back, the final installment, a tale of two friends, Craig Richardson, an economist, Ben Freeth, who owned a family farm that was seized by the government. More about their stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this remarkable story for our Rule of Law series. Zimbabwe dictator Robert Mugabe's seizure of farms owned by white citizens led to the country's economic collapse. And two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist, have been bringing us through the story. And Craig picks back up on Zimbabwe's hyperinflation. That all ran its course by the time prices were doubling every single day, every 24 hours at at its worst. By 2009, the government basically realized they couldn't go any further, they couldn't print money ever any faster, and they realized they were at the end of the road, and they adopted the U.S. dollar. And what was remarkable is that inflation dropped from hundreds of millions of percent a year down to to two percent. I mean, it just matched the U.S. inflation rate because it, we're using the same currency. So from 2009 to to here, they've basically been on the U.S. dollar, and they've tried to start to issue their own currency, but it's been a big failure. So we've kind of kept them in check, or kept their government in somewhat in check, because they can't run deficits anymore, you know, unless they get foreign aid. But they really they're really locked in that way. But this isn't enough to get them back. They have to rebuild their trust. Sierra even, he said, Mugabe. Anyone who's murdered white farmers uh, will never be prosecuted. And, and we've seen that over, over all the years where people have been murdered. None of them, none of the murderers have been prosecuted. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a brutal system that we live under where the government or government lackeys will, uh, will do that and police will stand by. In fact, when my wife went to the police station, the police just laughed at her. Literally, they laughed at her. They knew exactly what was happening. My wife reported all the shooting that had been going on, the fact that we'd been taken off to one of the torture camps that were being run at the time because it was election time and and that's what the ruling party does ahead of elections. Uh, People were being tortured and we were one of those victims and the police just laughed, you know. Um, It's it's a pretty horrific thing to live through um, that, that there is this total impunity and what was really very uh, disappointing was that President Munangagwa, this new president that we've got now, said 
to Zan Smiley from The Economist magazine that the 2008 elections, which is the time that I'm talking about when there was so many, I mean, there were tens of thousands of people that were tortured. He said, Monongagwa said, there was no violence. That election was free and fair. He said, there are no reports in any police stations of any violence. And, you know, I remember lying in hospital with, with victims of this violence, victims who had been tortured like we were tortured and had broken bones in their bodies like we had broken bones in our bodies. And um, for the current president, who was head of the Joint Operational Command during that 2008 election, to say that there was no violence <laughs> during that time is, is horrific. But none of those people were ever prosecuted. And under Monongagwa, they won't be prosecuted either because he says there's no, there was no violence. But there were hundreds of people killed and tens of thousands of people tortured within inches of their lives. And the torture is even more widespread in a much more daily way. The people that used to feed the whole of Southern Africa were now hungry themselves. Ben and his wife still live in Zimbabwe and he has now started a foundation called the Mike Campbell Foundation. Named after his father-in-law who died after the beatings he took. Which works with black farmers on improved farming technique. They have farming yields that are five times higher than government farms. So he's just a remarkable guy. You know, God, I believe, is a God of justice, and, and God wants us to be able to stand for him for justice. And, you know, when you've got your life at risk, you have to know what is going to happen to you if, if they come and take you out. So our Christian faith has been fundamental in giving us the courage and giving us the impetus and giving us the provision, in fact, as well, because there's many times when you, you wonder how on earth you're going to be able to carry on because everything's been taken and it's very difficult to, to make a living. And, and God has provided for us materially to be able to carry on. He's provided for us in the form of ensuring that lawyers come alongside us and they've done incredible pro bono work for us because uh, they've believed in what we're doing and because uh, I believe God has, has directed them to, to help out. So our Christian faith is what has kept us going through all these very troubled times and has kept us also from becoming bitter and full of hatred because you know this is this is a natural thing when when people come and 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 take everything that you've ever worked for and when people in your family die and when you get beaten within an inch of your life and, and things like that then the natural thing very often is to become bitter um, and i've seen it i've seen people become bitter and god has protected our hearts from from becoming bitter because at the end of the day bitterness is something that destroys you and destroys the people that are around you it does nothing to change anything for the better for, for anyone 
it's it's a terrible thing, bitterness. So we we just thank God for for protecting our hearts from that bitterness that that is so possible and so probable in circumstances like we've faced. Ben and his family have committed to stay in Zimbabwe for the long haul until law rules the day. And although the present is full of chaos, there are pebbles of promise. So I tell a kind of a quick story uh, about that. I was um, when I was in Zimbabwe. You know, one of my favorite things is to get out of the city and drive, drive out in the countryside. So I, I had a fellow who, who got with me in a Land Rover, and we were driving through villages and, and a couple of, you know, I like to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. So I, I stopped at a farm. Uh, where there was some dairy cattle and there was a, a young uh, black farmer there he had a very nice tidy house there made out of brick and a beautiful uh, second um, a second place an outdoor um, cooking area again beautiful thatched roof you know 30 dairy cattle he was at we turned out he was dairy farmer of the year um, and we started talking and I said you know what's your key to success and he got this big smile on his face and I, I did not feed him this at all believe me and I, and I said what is the key and he said he said my property title it's everything to me and I said well what do you mean he said this this is what is the whole reason why I've invested in my farm he said I was I was nobody I was had a little quarter acre plot I could barely feed anybody before that and I had no reason to he said but I got this property title and suddenly my whole world changed and he just said my property title it's everything to me you know and that really stuck with me um and the second part of that same day um i was still you know driving through these dusty roads and you know the sort of stereotypical um african mud huts you would see and suddenly we saw another house being built that was brick and um again with windows and you know, beautiful brick house um, just coming out of the ground and we stopped and there was a woman there and I stopped and I said, hey, you know, hey, you know, my name's Craig Richardson um, and she was a little bit shy about talking. What's this guy? What does he want? But we talked a little bit and then I, I asked her, I said, what, you know, I'm interested. Why are you building this nice brick house? And she said, well, I just got a, um, a property title. And I've suddenly now, I, I've spent all, you know, last month drawing out my house and putting where my windows would go. And now I got a loan from my bank. And I have a field now that I'm thinking completely differently what I'm going to grow and how I'm going to grow and what I'm going to sell. You know, and, and the, it was funny because the guy driving with me didn't really, he, you know, he was, he was like, I would have never thought to ask that question. You know, it was sort of right in front of him, you know, like, like it is with a lot of us. Things that are right in front of our noses. We don't even think to ask. But it was just remarkable. And I have pictures of that house that I show, you know, because it's just remarkable in both of those cases how these were people who were subsistence, you know, on subsistence. And that turn of events, getting that property title, completely transformed everything. Getting that property title completely transformed everything. And we don't know, we can't imagine life in this great country or anywhere else for that matter without the property right and the rule of law that supports that property right. Terrific work, Alex, as always. And this story, by the way, was inspired by a paper that Craig Richardson wrote 
by the think tank the Cato Institute. It was entitled, How the Loss of Property Rights Caused Zimbabwe's Collapse. If you want to dive even deeper into this story, make sure to go to Cato.org and search for Craig's paper. And while there, check out all of Cato's great work. They're bringing liberty to life for all of us. Our Rule of Law series, twice monthly, on Our American Stories, and you can subscribe to the podcast by simply searching for Rule of Law on iTunes. Leave us a review if you can, and a five-star rating if you believe that we actually deserve it. This is Our American Stories.